Hello and welcome back to the Family Prosperity Podcast. This is Mason. Today we're going to be covering some family governance in practice. We've been talking about growth and we've been talking about adding people, but how exactly do we approach the challenge of adding that new person to the family? Today I'm going to be covering the challenges that come up when you try to add a spouse and how it's a little different based on where you are in your family governance journey. Okay, so if you're like me, you're getting married next week. And if you are getting married next week, you really need to be considering how this new person is going to be fitting into your life. Are you like the Cargills with a family that has generations of family governance already in the books? Or are you just starting out on your own? Are you building your family from scratch? No matter where you're starting, you have to consider, well, where you're going. And for most of us, it's going to be somewhere in between these two extremes. I think it's an easy way to think about it if we break it down into three different stages of your family governance journey where you're trying to integrate this new spouse, this significant new person. One, you can be like the Cargills and you've got generations of people who have practice integrating people. The rules are there, they're probably not going to change much, and you have a lot of traditions and practices for bringing them in. Families that are really good at this bring that new spouse in, they maybe tour them around the main asset generation, so the main businesses for the family, maybe the other things that are generating wealth, maybe they teach them about the charities they're involved with, and they'll train them, they'll prepare them, and they'll get them excited for being a part of the family. Everything's down, everything's kind of simple, and really in this situation there's no hurt feelings. It's pretty a, it's going to be a pretty easy and positive integration. There's this big thing that existed before. Just like if you were bringing someone new into your church or your business, there's going to be all these things that are already there that feel established because they are established and make it really easy for someone to come in. So you don't need to do a lot of changing unless it's a really unique person. And then sometimes you have to re-examine some things, but for the most part, you're not changing much. Now, where most people might be at is where they have some semblance of a family governance structure, but they haven't done this before. So this is the first time they might be integrating that next person in. Hopefully, if you've done things right, you've actually set up some of the basics before your next generation of people are bringing people into the family. That's why we wanna start some of these, even just basic meetings really early on, before we think we have $20 billion that we're gonna be splitting up between 10,000 heirs, we need to know what it's going to look like as we grow and change. So hopefully you've done that, and when it's your first time, you can't have everything covered. So the easiest way to go over this is hopefully, once again, before we pop the question, or anyone in your family pops the question, or decides for sure that this person's coming into our lives, because at that time, we can depersonalize it. We can make sure that it's not about any particular person. We're not making these decisions so, you know, this person coming in is going to be protected against divorce. That's a really tough thing to do, which is, again, start early. So you're avoiding the pitfalls of building the policies up around specific people, but you're going to have the pitfalls of not having that experience. So you need to consider some questions, and I wanted to go over some of the big pitfalls you can make when you're trying to come up with this for the first time. For my family, it was more difficult actually to do some of the things we had agreed to do ahead of time. 
we had talked about this a lot and for a while we agreed that it probably wasn't the best idea for someone coming in from the outside to immediately begin and be a voting member. But when they like this person so much, they're a part of our lives and they're excited to bring them in the family, it almost feels like you have to do it. it just like when someone turns 18, my sister thought, hey, they should maybe get to vote. They should get to do that right away because, my gosh, they're a member of the family. And if we're going to include someone in the family, they should get to vote, which is a great and inclusive concept. And that's one of the big conflations people make right off the bat. They go, voting means being included. And being included means I get to vote on everything. And that's just not how things work. If we think back to the corporate world, we want to look at how they tend to govern things because that's a really good example of something that is alive, that's separate from us, and it's going to continue on regardless of what happens to any specific member of the organization. At least that's how it is if it's a good, high-functioning business. So when we think about the concepts of inclusion and participation, voting, things like that, we can look to that world to get a good idea of some of the ways we can do this. Now, a lot of times people wouldn't expect that the CEO might not be a voting board member in a company, but way less than half the time is that the case. In other words, CEOs that have to report, they have a bunch of duties and responsibilities, and they're definitely included in the company, but they're not necessarily voting members of the board. Is that because they're less a part of the company than a board member? I don't think so. So why is that? When we're looking at what the board of a company does, it's those people who have maybe some vested interest, a strategic vision, and concerns that are kind of overall strategic vision concerns. And if you're a chief executive officer, you're executing those things. And when it comes to the family, we want the same kind of concept. We want that family board to be executing those long-term vision strategy projects. So even though this new person is really included in the family, they might not be at the point where we want them voting on the future of the family in a strategic way. In fact, just like with kids, there might be some criteria to do it, or just to protect against some messy outcomes in the case of divorce, they might never be able to vote at all. One of the ways we sorted out in my family is when we talked about developing the rules that we wanted to do with this, we went over what it really meant to be someone who's making long-term strategic goals for a family. And what that kind of meant to us was that well, first, you're your own independent person. It would be kind of silly if I got married, had a couple kids, and suddenly that means I control the entire future of our family because I have like four votes that are all vested behind me. You don't want that to happen. Even though all of those people are just as important as members of the family, they're just as included, and they might have roles that are really valuable. They might even contribute more than some family members that can vote. But that's not what it's about. It's about how we balance things, how we run things, and how we have that strategic vision. So anyway, the way we sorted this out was to understand that one, they're that individual, but then secondarily, they have to have some kind of a concept of how they're going to continue the family on. They have to have that family orientation. So even if I'm bringing up someone in the family, they might not be ready to have a board position when they hit 18 because they're probably still living with their parents. They aren't their own individual yet, and they don't even know 
if they want a family of their own, if they want to continue to pass down the values, the vision, and the wealth that have come down through the family. So how that simplified it really well for us is that we really came to the conclusion that really no particular family branch that's willing to participate and be included, sign that commitment agreement, as long as we're under one kind of family governance structure, no group of people or individual kind of interest group should really have more of a say than the others. Now, at some point when you have 10,000 heirs, like you're going to have if you do family governance properly, and all the wealth is perfectly passed down to all of them, they're going to have to section off a little bit. They might have to work together rather than all having the same board because people grow apart, even families, even though they will be able to trace it back to that initial family governance structure, which is amazing. But as long as they're under one board while well, they're trying to control it as a team, as a group that works together this way before they've branched off too far, it's a really good idea not to let one sibling, one family unit dominate the conversation and especially not let them dominate the voting. And again, that doesn't mean you don't include these people. I really want to stress that because people really get confused that Oh, well, if they can't vote, they can't come to the meetings. That's not true. They should be involved. They should have their voice heard, especially if they're given responsibilities. If we look to these families that are really successful, we see that they take these spouses and they develop them, they grow them, and they make sure their talents are utilized in an effective way because why would you not use somebody that's all in, all there to commit to the family? Which brings us to things like that commitment agreement that you should have for your family. How committed is this new person going to be? Once we've decided they're going to be there for the rest of our lives, are they committing in the same way? Are they needing to sign that commitment agreement? Are you needing to draft something up specifically for them? You really need to think about everything you want to give them. And even though I tend to, again, you can do this however you want. Family governance isn't, it isn't a cookie cutter thing. It's not something that you can fit to every single family. So I'm not going to say you can't let, let these new spouses vote. That would be, I think that would be hypocritical of me. But I tend to lean that way because as long as they are committed to the family, they should be working with their spouse and for the interests of that family unit. And that family unit might have a vote through the board and they probably shouldn't have more than that. So as long as they're in there, they're committed, they're joining, it's not going to be as much of a problem. But where it does become a problem, if they start voting and directing and having some serious power, and even especially when you get like two of them doing it, they might even start, again, like a husband and wife, something like that, they might start being really at the helm of everything, and it starts to more belong to them. And then what happens when you get a, something splitting off, or you have a breakdown in any kind of relationship, it's going to be a lot more messy if they were also part of directing that future. You also have to realize how quickly boards can get out of hand and plan for that. That's another question you have to consider. How big are we going to let this board be? Once again, that same problem of trying to include everyone can, you know, come around and bite us because we want everyone to be happy and everyone feel heard. But feeling heard and actually coming together and voting is different. We don't want that board to be a hundred people that have to vote on everything that, that immediately gets out of hand. You got to look to the corporate world. You have to look to private enterprise. You have to look to, you know, foundations, charities, even sometimes colleges that have boards, boards of directors. Try to model that behavior a little bit because there's a reason it works that way. It functions effectively. And when you look at it that way, you realize maybe we don't need, you know, 40 people voting 30 years from now. That could be a problem. 
Okay, so I talked a lot about that because I assume that's kind of where most people are. They've got a good idea of family governance. They are sort of implementing it. They're really starting to get to the point where they feel solid. And then suddenly this new person comes in here and shatters it. But the last case that some people might be having is integrating people in the formational stage of this. So it's real easy with just one family unit that kind of founds this whole thing. And this is how it happens most of the time when you have, you know, a power person or a power couple or, you know, that initial team, how it was with us. You know, we got five of us and we founded this thing. So it's really not a question of whether we vote or not. But sometimes you're trying to integrate multiple families right from the get go. You might have that initial, you know, mom and dad started this thing. But then one of us is already married and we haven't really done the family governance. And this can have a lot of pitfalls because now we are making personal decisions. We're going, well, how would this affect that marriage? And I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it would be, especially if you're just learning about this concept and you've got to turn to your wife and go, look, honey, I just, I don't think, I mean, you're part of the family. That's, that's fine. It's great. We're, we're a team and all that, but no voting for you. You're not, you know, that that's not going to go over great. It's going to be more difficult. And the reasons have to be really well understood if you end up going that route. So it gets very difficult to have those conversations. Once again, why we always want people to start early with understanding who their family is and how they're going to interact and how they're going to deal with this growth in the future, because these are the conversations that can cause some real problems. So dealing with that takes a lot of time and education. And sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and either make people unequal for the future. I mean, I'm sorry, what if, you know, the, the people that are already married, what if she's really part of the business or he's really part of the business, whoever the spouses that came in here and they're really one of the founders. Maybe they should get to vote just because they were there at the beginning and they helped build it. They helped put it together. And it's just too hard to have those conversations. And we just go, well, better luck next time. Go to the future. That's better than nothing which is something you're going to hear a lot, you're not going to have that perfect policy. And if you try to, you're just going to crash and burn. So even being able to get that down as imperfect and difficult as that might sound, sometimes maybe there's exceptions. Sometimes maybe we just plan for the next person that comes along and try to make it fair from then on. I mean, that's how it is. If we talk about who we're going to be adding to the board as my family, we kind of agreed that, well, you should probably be 21. You should be independent and you should be thinking of starting a family, right? Well, my youngest sister does not fit that definition, but she's here since the beginning. I mean, she helped us get in the policies and helped us vote my dad out of the business so he could, you know, go to his physical, find out he had cancer, get cured, all that fun stuff. She was there for that. And then we just turn around and go, well, you know, since we kind of think it'd be good for these people now in the future to do this, you're, you're out for now. Like, good, thank you. For everything you've done, bye-bye. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to work. So maybe there's exceptions. And I think it's more important to actually try to have the conversation. But if it goes poorly and it it's going to be a deal breaker to get everyone on the same team, maybe that's really what's important to try to start writing something down, coming to some agreements, making something happen. And I know that's not the best answer that everyone would want to hear. But sometimes that's how life is. It's really messy. And it's not always fair. And even though we want to try to craft our policies and our plans in the best way we possibly can, it's way better to have a policy than not. So if you've had family governance forever and you're integrating new people, biggest pitfall is don't 
change it up and make this first person feel like they're not a part of it, just like everyone else that came into it. That's pretty easy. You've had the practice. If you're doing this for the first time, don't just automatically pull the trigger on stuff like letting them vote. Don't just automatically decide what it's going to look like, what inclusion is versus exclusion. Really sit down and think about that. Really grapple with it. Think about the responsibilities they want to have. Think about how you're going to transfer to them your family culture and have them bring in their talents and passion to your family because you need to do that whether or not they vote and that needs to be intentional so don't mess this up the first time that'll set the tone down the road either for oh wow you did way better the first time and now you don't really care about these or wow we really threw that first time together and it feels unfair now that this person's coming in and they get this huge package or something think about that ahead of time try to plan it out and if you're just trying to build your family governance right now and there's a lot of things that are messy don't let that stop you. If you let it stop you, you're never going to get to the point where it's easy and comfortable and effective to bring new people into the family because that takes years. It takes experience, it takes data, and it takes a lot of crafting to your particular family. So don't be scared off by that. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please subscribe either by email or through Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, all that wonderful stuff. And if you want to do something right now to figure out where you're at, how prepared you are for the future, for a little bit here, if you go to our shop website, there's actually just a little pop-up form. It'll ask you for your email and you'll get the free diagnostic that we use to assess where families are at in their family governance, in their family identity, and understand how, they're, how prepared they are so we can think about how they're going to move forward. If you go in, you put your email in, we will send you that diagnostic either in a digi digital or physical form so you can fill it out and understand where your family stands in this. Family governance is a journey. And just like with many things, the best time to start is right now. So I hope you keep listening to this podcast, keep educating yourself, and try to get your family to a place where you know it's going to survive no matter what happens to you or no matter what happens to any single member of your family. Have a great rest of your day.